Uh, September 23, 2012, a lecture discussion uh, number 82 on the book of Romans, and this is really September 16th's uh, lecture, but we had a, a high winds last week, and we've had high winds for weeks now, and flooding and all kinds of things, and we were forced to cancel because all the power lines were down all over the city and the Anchorage Bowl, for those of you who follow by the Internet. So that's why it seems to be uh, disoriented, and many of you have written me, and I'll explain more of that as we go along. Before beginning today's lecture, I thought it appropriate to read Janet uh, from uh, Janet from Oklahoma's question. I might even try to answer it. Wouldn't that be unusual? Because it's referencing the tribulation and the beginning of the tribulation. Um, and in light, if you're following any news at all, and I hope you are, in light of the current state of events, it's a worthy, talk, a worthy topic that we need to review. And uh, people are beginning to wonder what's going on. I Listen, somebody in the fourth century writes something after the Bible has been formed by God uh, that thinks that Christ might have had a wife or something silly. That, that's silliness. They think the church should be bogged down by that this week. No, that's just... I can put that on a T and destroy it in, in, in ten seconds. It's not, it's not worthy to review. But the current state of events is, as you know, and I have said many times, I believe it's obvious that Ezekiel 38 is right on the cusp. But that confederacy that from the north uh, is, is beginning to, uh, uh, to uh, put itself together. And this Muslim Brotherhood issue is significant. They're ta- they've taken over Libya. They've taken over uh, um, uh, Egypt. Uh, they are about to take over Syria. They are about to take over Yemen. They are taking things over. The most radical side of Islam, the violent side of Islam, um, is about to get control of the areas in which Ezekiel 38 says will attack Israel. And so, by the way, Israel reads Ezekiel 38. I mean, Ezekiel was a Jew, after all, a Jewish prophet. They know this, and they are preparing. So um, I think the hook is about to, to be set. I think God is also preparing, and he is preparing to defend Israel with, with, supernaturally from those who seek her annihilation. Uh, and great signs are about to be given. And not the least of which, by the way, uh, we're, we have a tendency to focus on the signs of Ezekiel, which are heavenly signs, physical signs. And we're stunned and we're all excited about that kind of stuff. But um, the, not the least of which is the sign of the rapture of the bride. And just as an aside, God said he's going to put a hook. And you've heard me talk about the hook that he sets that brings Russia from the north to attack Israel. Israel develops something. They have something. And I've talked about it after the service many times. And even in the service, I believe that Israel's technology is going to be astonishing. And they said so. They have been saying so the last few weeks. That they have a capability that no other country has. And we're going to find out what it is. And that very likely is a military capability. They have some weaponry. Or they, they do something that no one else can do. They, and who knows what it is. They, they have done something. It could be genetic. It could be anti-aging. It could be something that Putin wants. But he also would love a weapon that could stop the Chinese. So there's a hook that God is about to do that pulls the, the Confederacy 
to the south to invade Israel, and God will defend them in a supernatural way, and that'll be fantastic. I, I hope we get to watch that. But the sign that everyone's going to notice, believe it or not, in the nation of Israel is the sign of the rapture of the bride, the bridegroom being snatched. I'm sorry, the bridegroom coming to snatch his bride. And that's something that will be impossible for the nation of Israel, the divorced wife of God, to misinterpret. When the church is taken, that's a sign to the divorced wife that is Israel. And they will understand that sign. Many times you hear people say, well, uh, you know, we're getting out of something. No, you're a sign. Here's your sign. Israel will know that the bride has been snatched away by the bridegroom. What does that tell them? They get their own Hebrew betrothal ceremony. When the bride is snatched by the bridegroom, what will they think? They will know a bunch of stuff. What will they know? Then the bridegroom came, and he didn't take them. Oops. We have big problems now. And they're not going to miss that. And that's an aspect of the rapture that largely goes unnoticed in the church today. The snatching away of the bride is a sign for the wife. That's the point. And Israel will get it, as I said, and they will also understand the destruction of the Ezekiel 38 confederacy. And if those two are anywhere near each other, and we don't know, but if they are, oh my goodness... The destruction of that Ezekiel 38 confederacy, that is the God of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, the King. Jesus Christ is about to come back and land physically on the earth as opposed to being in the sky for the bride. And the Jews, Israel, the people of Israel, I don't know what's going to happen to the Jews of this country. I don't know. But I do know the ones in Israel are the remnant. And they will understand all of this. Anyway, Janet from Oklahoma asks about the timing of the tribulation, and so I I thought I'd read Janet here. (coughs) She says this, By the way, I have studied Daniel and Revelation over the last three years with precept. And I think that is a system of Bible study. And I have a question, or basically want to know your opinion. Well, my opinion would be what? That's right, it would be correct. So she wants to know what's correct. Okay, maybe not. On when does the tribulation begin? I know the peace treaty with Israel is key. However, in Revelation, when does that occur? Okay, what she's talking about is there is a confirmation of a, of a peace treaty. In other words, there's, the, the peace treaty is in existence. But what the Antichrist does is he confirms it. Uh, and so the confirming of that of that treaty that ensures Israel's safety is the beginning of the tribulation. Unlike the rapture, we can tell when the tribulation is going to happen, because as soon as that peace treaty is confirmed by the Antichrist, that launches the uh, tribulation. Let me explain this for you. Um, You have imminency, imminency, okay? Imminent. The, the rapture is imminent, which means what? It can happen at any time. That is the doctrine of the rapture. We cannot know the minute, hour, if you will, or day. But you will be able to know. It says you can see the door. 
So you'll have an idea of when to start running up your credit cards. It'll work for you. Everything will be, you'll get within maybe a year or so. But you'll be able to see, and how long can they chase you? You know, just, I know all the tricks. See me later. Do not, do not confuse imminency with immense, or immanent, uh, I can't even say it, immense, I can say them all the same. Immanent, or immanency. Okay, they are not the same, or imminent, as in your imminence. How do you spell imminent? Did I write it now? I did, I'm doing good. See, your imminency is what you would call, say, for example, me. Okay, in case you were wondering. Some of you would call, you have been calling me your immensity. That's not the same. Okay, so you got Imminent means inherent. Uh, where imminency or imminent means uh, uh, at any time or any moment or about to be, if you will. And people confuse those, and I pronounce them all about the same. Uh, but this is the one you should know. Uh, imminence, um, that is, of course, excellence, our great importance. And so you should memorize that one. Yes. Yeah, well, yes, I, uh, I am, in fact, great high pastor potentate. That is true. I, I, that comes up later. Try not to get ahead of the lecturer if you can. You know, just slow yourself down and relax. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, the, the point of that is, is the, the tribulation does begin with the confirming of the, uh, of the peace treaty. He guarantees their peace and they accept it and they begin to relax, which is a, uh, one of the key elements of it. How could they relax, you ask, with the confederacy being destroyed and the snatching of the bride sign and the 144,000? Uh, how is it that they can fall for the Antichrist? And that just tells you uh, that it isn't very many of them, but it probably is their government. And that is, a, that is very common. Our government is increasingly secular. Uh, I have said, as you know, for many years that I believe that this country was very well aware during the Iraq war of the relationship to, Kur- to the Kurds or Kurdistan and Israel or Assyria and Israel. So I think that this country and the leadership of this country knew that they were in Isaiah 19 at the time of that war and never said it. But they certainly acted as if that were the case. So, anyway, um, that's uh, hopefully that helps you, Janet. Um, as you know, and this is for the Internet folks, as, uh, since I'm w- with uh, doing Janet's letter, uh, I'm dealing with the death of my mother and the subsequent issues that have come from her estate, which, uh, to put her estate in, to put it mildly about her estate, it is in disrepair I said it is not habitable, and that's really the case. We're working on it. I'm working on it two days a week now. I can get over there Tuesdays and Thursdays, and what I'm doing is pulling down sheetrock because the plumbing has totally failed in that house. We we turned the plumbing on the other day, me and Tim the plumber, and um, um, and everything leaked. Every supply line, every drain line. And I have a roof leak, and uh, so the sheetrock downstairs was just paste. I pulled it down from the ceiling. Um, 
uh, as if it were uh, plaster of Paris or, um, you know, um, or what, what, would you, what do you call that stuff you mix with flour to make really ugly volcanoes when you're young? Anyway, that's what it was. And it was a mess. And, and I proved to my sister that I do have the most powerful hands in the world because I stuck them through, literally stuck it right through the uh, 4x6s and the 4x12s that are supporting the back deck. So they are complete, they're completely rotten, and you can just stick your finger through it almost in any place you poke. So that's, uh, the, there's general decay, there's hazard, hazardous material, I have to have a hazmat suit, the roof leaks, the fixtures are broken, the appliances are broken, the flooring, the carpentry, uh, um, so the cabinetry and the, uh, uh, the carpet, the siding, the windows. I pull the brick mold out with my bare hands, it's just a mess. I have five inches of moss on the roof. So I have to, and I will, uh, devote considerable time to this. I have to do it. My sister's future depends on it. We have to be able to sell it and recover enough uh, to get her into another place. And so that's what I'm going to be doing. That's going to affect uh, my time a great deal. And, um, and that's going to then explain what's going to happen over the next few months, probably. I'm going to slow down uh, my progress into Romans 5. I have to do that. I will move forward into Romans 5. That's Adam, and it's very important, the typology of Adam again, and how it relates to Gethsemane, how it, Janet from, Jennifer, I'm sorry, from Arizona had a question on uh, Adam and where his Gethsemane moment is. I'll finally answer that, Jennifer. And so I will move forward in the three uh, questions of Adam again, and I'll connect them to David's uh, three questions as well, or three, uh, uh, three possibilities, I guess would be better, three selections. But it's going to go really slow, and it's going to be indistinguishable from a dead stop, frankly. Yes? Okay, uh, Supper Day for you folks on the Internet is saying that he hopes that the uh, website is going to be uh, loaded up heavily with uh, material during this time period. And uh, we hope that will mitigate this somewhat. But anyway, uh, like I said, it's, uh, at the railroad, um, we used to have a guy who was a car shop guy, a wonderful man, but he, um, he did not move fast, and they called him Slewfoot. And the joke there was that you had to drive stakes in the ground and go by the shadows to see if any of the employees were moving. Uh, that was the government. <laughs> the FRA, uh, Federal Railway Administration, had control. Federal government did of the railroad when I was there. So um, that comes to mind for me. We're going to need instrumentation to determine whether or not I'm moving. Uh, through Romans 5. But uh, finally, the question will be answered on the bright side. How slow can I go without going totally backwards? We're about to resolve that. So that's going to be tough, and I get it, and I know it, but there's nothing I can do. I can't wait for the visitor to respond to it, though. Okay, left off last Sunday in full ranting idiot mode. There, see? Kathy wanted to know, where, were the, where is the ranting idiot? Well, I'm right here. I left off last Sunday in full ranting idiot mode, and pretty much leaving off at John 8:24. That's where we were. 
And I can't put John 8.24 on the board enough. I can't say it enough, and we'll say it again today. Anyway, John 8.24 and the typology of the Passover lamb sacrifice, or what is also called the uh, having been perfected, Hebrews 5.9 description, that is Christ. Having been perfected, uh, Hebrews 5.9, very, very important to understand it, um, and uh, it is often misinterpreted. You've heard me talk about it before. Um, Bill, the, the Bill the cow, as distinguished from Fast Bill, uh, talked to me earlier. He was he gets on the internet and he has these wonderful discussions with people, and you might find him out there and not know he's, who he is. But uh, if you do, internet people, identify yourself, and he will be glad to uh, argue with you. I'm sure he had a guy come to him and say, "Hey, uh, there was there is no original sin," and, and his response was uh, circumcision. If there is no original sin, why do I have the sign of circumcision? And I, my response, of course, was uh, when Bill asked me what I would respond, I would, why do I have a sacrificial system? You're going to say there is no original sin, and then they do. Uh, you're, you're going to have to throw out vast amounts of Scripture, specifically the Old Testament. By the way, how many Old Testament sermons do you hear in the contemporary modern church today? They don't like it, because you've got to deal with that sacrificial system. The blood ran and ran and ran hundreds and hundreds of thousands of animals killed in that temple. The blood was deep and, and wide and endless. The circumcision was a wonderful response, because that is the cutting off, if you will, of the flesh, right? Why do I have to have, a, why do I have, to have flesh and blood? Why do I need new blood? Why do I need new flesh? What's the purpose of communion if I don't have to repair the blood and the flesh, or, or, or renew it, if you will? But anyway, enough of that. Jesus Christ... This Hebrews 5.9, having been perfected description of Christ. Jesus Christ designed, because he's God, before time, and, and it was therefore uh, so, he designed it so, and, and he was examined by the world. That's what he wanted, if you will, to use a bad term. He wanted to be examined by the world. Um, he wanted his suffering to occur. He wanted the world to to demonstrate that the world hates him by trying to kill him. So he also included this examination process. That is what having been perfected means. It's the examination process. But anyway, prior he did that prior to his sacrificial death. That was the order of it. And he was found to be what by the world as they examined him? He was found to be perfect. What do we say to that? That's right, duh. Of course he was found to be perfect. What, are you nuts? But it's very, very important that you understand the sacrificial, uh, um, I'm sorry, the uh, having been perfected prior to the sacrificial death aspect of that. Declared to be perfect by his examiners. Having gone through the, the uh, perfection evaluation test. Having, the, having been perfected uh, stamp put on him, meaning that he had gone through the process, Right? Just like you would inspect it by number nine on a piece of clothing. You can say the same thing. Inspected by number nine, uh, a tag, is or number 14, whatever your tag may be, is exactly the same as uh, having been perfected tag, if you will. That's what that means. It does not mean that he wasn't perfect. He's always perfect. He is perfect. He can't be anything but perfect. That's why it's called omniperfection. So that's, that's the meaning 
of Hebrews 5.9. Compare it, by the way, to the leprosy exam, because they did that as well. Having been found with leprosy, having been uh, cleansed or clean, having been declared clean of leprosy, same thing. So Christ was discovered by mankind as, per- as perfect, a revealed, determined by mankind to be sinless. Christ is and always will be sinless. And it is therefore important to understand that because he is able now to be the sacrifice. He is able now to be the sacrifice for the sins of the non-perfect, which is everybody else. No one else has ever gotten the tag, if you will. No one else has ever accomplished the having been perfected. I understand it was done with animals. The Pharisees controlled the system. And they sold the the animals. And you had to have the having been perfected system stamp on it. And otherwise you couldn't use it for a sacrifice. So that's how they made their money, right? Which tells you about the shepherds who saw the... uh, Child, the incarnation. Anyway, of the birth. All of that leads to many questions uh, for many people to confront. And this is what I did a little bit last week. I'm reviewing. For example, if the sacrifice for sin, the sacrifice that substitutes himself for the sins of others, including me and you and all of us, If that sacrifice that is substituting himself is in any way imperfect, has one spot, one tiny dot of leprosy, which is a typology for sin, if that sacrifice has has in any way any imperfection at all, what results? What's the result? That seems pretty clear to me. So I... Want to know this? Does anyone disagree that the Bible consistently and repeatedly states that the sacrifice must be sinless in order to accomplish salvation? Does anybody disagree with that? Does anybody say, disagree that the, the sacrifice must be pure, must be without blemish, must be uh, spotless, without spot, must be innocent? Whoa, that's a cool one. Innocent. What's the obvious question? You would think innocence like a child or a puppy, right? No, that's a legal term. The, the sacrifice must be innocent. Of what? The charge against the sacrifice. What's being charged? Who is charging? So, that's why you have that court procedure problem, right? It always keeps to come up. Does Scripture say that the sacrifice must be without blemish, without spot, must be absolutely perfect? Does it stress it? It must be innocent in order to be what? In order to be able. Doesn't Scripture repeatedly stress Christ's ability or his ableness to be the sacrifice? Does anyone disagree with that? Must he be able? And perfect, without blemish, innocent, in order to be accepted as the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. The sweet savor. Does anybody disagree that if if he has any spot, he can't be the sacrifice? And if he has any spot, what's the result? The answer to that is nothing. Nothing's the result. As opposed to what? Salvation. Absolutely right. Well done. Does anyone disagree with that? And the answer is, 
Yes. They do disagree. They can and they do. By the thousands, hundreds of thousands. And they're Christians. I said last Sunday that if Jesus Christ is God, and he is, and if it is then decided, and by the way, decided by who? Decided by men, and this is where I love C.S. Lewis. I'm going to use it almost every day from here on out. Our, Our preferences have not been considered by God. I don't want to say he doesn't care what you think, because I believe he does. But you don't get to make any decisions on his plan of salvation. Sorry. Not really. That is an imperfect sorry. Okay, it's not even a sorry. As you know, it's a fake sorry. But people disagree. If Jesus Christ is God, and he is, and if, and if it has been decided by men, and decided is in quotations because it's so fascinating to me, the very ones who say that we can't decide anything decide this. And they do. They say, you can't make a free will decision, but we've decided that God is the source of sin. God created sin, they will say. God is the author of sin, they say. And they say so because they have decided, even though they say you can't decide, they have decided, concluded, that God's omniscience, his foreknowledge, requires that that be the case. Because they cannot resolve his omniscience and free will of humans or angels. But so they decide that God is the source of sin. God is the author of sin. God has sin. God created sin. If that's true, then Jesus Christ is who? He is God himself, right? He is God in the flesh, and therefore he is also what? He is the creator of sin. And he has what inside of him? He has sin. So when you decide that God is the creator and the author of sin, then Christ is also the creator of sin and the author of sin, because he and God is sameness. He is the I am. And if you have the sacrifice now, because he is also the sacrifice for sin, if you have the sacrifice with sin inside of him, then what have you done with the sacrifice? You fouled it. It's fouled. And if the sacrifice has any sin in it and is fouled, then it is not acceptable. And now what's our problem? That's right. None are saved, including those who have declared themselves to be predestined to be saved. Again, can anyone disagree with that? Can anyone disagree with the ranting idiot? Yes. Yes, they can. And yes, they do. But before I address the arguments of those who take issue, let's repeat the absolutes for them and for yourselves and for all of us, because it's always a good idea. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the symbolism and the typology of the Passover lamb, which what? It's brought into the house and examined. He, and examined for what? Spot or blemish, right? 
He is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. He says so. He is the fulfillment of the unleavened bread. Leaven being a symbol for sin, and the bread has no leaven in it. He is the symbol of the typology, whichever you prefer, symbol more accurate here, of the pure white manna that comes from heaven. Okay? The red heifer, the fine flour, the sweet incense, the fine linen. All of those, and I just I left out all the rest of them. There's hundreds of them. And they all and more testify um, of the sinlessness of Christ, the perfection of Christ. All of those symbols do. And, and the acceptance of his sacrifice by the Godhead. Christ is innocent of the charge of something. What is he innocent of the charge of? What's the charge against him? And he's declared to be innocent by man, by the world, by the Pharisees, by Pilate. He's innocent of what? Of the charge that he has sinned. And therefore he is able to be the sacrifice and he is perfect and the sacrifice is accepted. That is how it works. That is the theme of scripture, that Christ is innocent of the charge that he has sinned. There is no sin in Christ And it must be so, or none are saved. None. So, next obvious question. Who, by the way, would dare make the charge that God has sin in him? That God is the author of sin? That God is the creator of sin? That God started the sin? Who would dare to say that Christ has sin in him? Who would dare to do that? Answer? Pretty much everybody. There's thousands and thousands, millions. And it is, in fact, uh, the, by the way, the first lie of the fivefold lies of Satan. I need to repeat that lecture. It's old now, and I should do it again. I get questions and, and requests for it all the time. But the first lie of Satan is that God has sin in him uh, and that he had to be the creator of sin. So when you find yourself agreeing with one of the lies of Satan, you should really sit down and think about that a second. And if you also find yourself agreeing with the physicalists or the evolutionary monists simultaneously with agreeing with Satan, and you, you should also think that might be a problem. But anyway, the first lie of Satan that God has sin in him and Christ has sin in him, therefore, as well. And Christ demonstrates that sin all throughout the New Testament, they will say to you. Where does he do it? He does it with what? He does it with his fear. He's afraid, they say. He's afraid at Gethsemane. He's afraid all over the place. They, do, they say it with his uh, lack of omniscience when he asks the question, Who touched me? They say that's an example of no omniscience. I say that's an example of him teaching the crowd. They'll argue with me. If you don't have omniscience, then then you will have sin. It takes omniscience to be perfect. That's another lecture. But they'll constantly say that God has sin in him, Christ has sin in him, with no recognition of what that does to the salvation system with the substitute with the sacrifice. And they say it over and over and over again, and they say it nonstop, and they say it every minute, every day, and they say it without fear, and they say it without remorse, and they say it without ceasing by countless people. And I want to know why do they do it? Why do they want this? 
And how will God respond to it ultimately? That's next week's sermon, by the way. Are they good people? Wonderful talk show guy that I listen to quite a bit, uh, uh, Dennis Prager. He struggles here. Next week, I'll help Dennis. Hope he listens. He won't. But just in case, Dennis, I'll listen to you every morning. But here, Dennis goes off the rails. There's many forms of this, but it's always the same charge. It's the same accusation. God is cruel. God is capricious. God is absent and uncaring, therefore. God is powerless. God lies. God is the origin of evil. They're all the same thing. All of them flow from the same spring Uh, They are identical. And if it is said of God, any of those things, then all of it also must be applied to Christ, must be said of Christ, Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things. Jesus Christ can never be separated from God uh, in spite of the efforts of man to do so. Again, they do it without ceasing. Hopefully you begin to see their motive now uh, for doing so. Anyway, oops. Anyway, those who protest that God is the one who began evil, either directly or indirectly. Now, let me address that for a second. Did, if God is the one who began evil, did he do it knowingly? He has to because he's omniscient. And therefore, there is no indirectly. It's all directly. So I throw out their, their God began evil directly or indirectly. It's like the grilled cheese sandwich question or commercial. I just love that commercial. Grilled cheese sandwich. Hot or cold? The guy guy goes, hot. Isn't grilled hot? Well, that's the same thing. It's either omniscience by definition is knowing. And knowing knowingly then, there's no other way he can begin evil if you think he did begin evil, which you're wrong to begin with. So, anyway. Those who protest that God is the one who knowingly then begins evil are aware, by the way, of the problem that they now have, that they have poisoned Christ's sacrifice and with, uh, with his godhood. Because if, if, if Christ is God and God is evil, then Christ is evil and I've poisoned the sacrifice. And if I've, done, if I've poisoned the sacrifice with his godhood, I've eliminated salvation. So what do they do? You begin to see the motive where they're stuck. Pretty soon they've got to stop Christ from being God, right? They separate Christ from, his, from the Godhead because they are aware that they poisoned the sacrifice. And they used to come up to my door with, with, with nothing, and they were astonished and dismayed as I, I tore their positions to pieces, frankly. That's what I did. But after a while they started to return, with the, and they had two responses now. So they had a committee meeting. How do we deal with a ranting idiot? And they would come back. Much to my delight. And it was apparent, as I said, that their elders, prophets, and bishops, they had to have a meeting. And I expected to, to, to have a sign placed you know, in a sneaky way. Sarah, I can't even say it. Somebody say it for me. Yes. <laughs> But I expected them to hide a little sign. Now now that I've been identified as the ranting idiot, I think I'll put my own sign up. Uh, 
I have a big R.I. on my door. But anyway, they come back after a while, and they, they came with two answers that they liked, and they were confident in these two answers. They were really sure that this was going to rule. Boy, they had had their committee, and they no one could solve it, and surely that goofy person is not going to be able to deal with this. And again, I've been doing this 40 years. This isn't my first goat rope, right? And I knew what I was in for. And I knew what they were going to come back. So here's what they came back with. They say this. In our fallen condition, we are incapable of discerning good from evil. Okay? So there's no possibility that we can figure out what is good and what is evil. That's what they say. True? That's what they say. So be ready for that. What we think is evil, if God does it, they will say and you've heard me say this in the past weeks, is actually good. We cannot tell the difference, and we do not possess the capability to learn or know the difference. This then progresses to, since God takes all evil things and eventually uses them for good, then all evil things inevitably are good, and rendered good, converted into good, and therefore evil is good. And good is evil. That's what they're going to knock on your door, and that's their answer. The second was, Jesus Christ became the sin offering. In other words, they said, Jesus Christ became sin for us. So therefore, he has sin in him because he became sin. And because he's omniscient and before time, he knew that sin would be in him and therefore the sin was already in him. And that progressed into Jesus Christ laid aside his godhood, leaving the sin portion behind. Because they got to get the sin out of him now. It's sin in him, sin out of him. Keeping only the innocent, perfect, sinless portion. Which uh, then became an accepted sacrifice. And that finally became, ultimately, it, it disintegrates into Jesus Christ was never God. God created him without sin to be the sacrifice for sin. That's the one that they come with most of the time. And, and, um, and there are other such explanations, but this is their best. The ones they're confident can't be refuted. So, let's see how we do. Let's ask a few questions. See if I can get it done here. If we have no capability to discern good from evil, we can't tell. Well, what's the obvious question now? If I can't tell good from evil, what else can't I tell? I can't tell what? Pick something. Can I tell color? If I can't tell good from evil, can I tell green? Christopher can't. He's colorblind. Can I tell green from red? Can I, I can't tell good from evil. Can I tell heavy from light? If I have no ability to tell what good from evil is, what else can I not tell? Pick something. What else is it that I don't know? Ultimately, i got to ask, if I can't tell good from evil, can I know anything? Why then, also, does Genesis 3.22 tell us that Adam, after he fell, has exactly the capacity to know good from evil? In fact, he's identified as knowing good from evil. That was one of the consequences of the fall. The question becomes, did he know good from evil before the fall? Did he know the difference between God and Satan? Because Satan obviously fell before Adam. 
This is what we'll get into when we get to Romans 5. Could Adam know the difference, and he was not deceived, did Adam know the difference between a lie and a truth? Pre-fall and post-fall. So if Adam could do it, is he the only one that could do it? The rest of us can't. Why is through the law comes the knowledge of sin? Romans 3.20 What is the point of the book of Proverbs? What is the point of Ecclesiastes? What is the point of anything that talks about our behavior if we cannot tell the difference between one behavior and another behavior? We have no capacity to know the difference between good and evil. And back we go to C.S. Lewis. If we are imbeciles, total imbeciles, without the ability to know right from wrong, good from evil, lies from truth, life from death, light from darkness, belief from unbelief, grace from works, Christ from Satan. We're total imbeciles. We can't figure any of that out. Where are we? If we are at that level, what now can't be done? We can't be, well, you're right. We're, we can't be judged. And you've thrown out now Ecclesiastes. You've thrown out all judgment, the great white throne. That's the best you could do, huh? If good doesn't apply to God, by the way, and it doesn't, if God, if God, if there is no, if, if evil is good and good is evil and therefore good doesn't apply to God, then good cannot be defined. In other words, it can mean anything. And if it can mean anything, then it is what? It's meaningless. Why even have the word? Why did God put it, the word, in the Bible? Why does he describe himself as good if there is no difference, if it cannot be told the difference between good and evil? And they will answer to me, well, God can tell the difference. You just can't. Okay. I always ask them, what does God say is the difference between good and evil? What does God say is good and what does God say is not good? Does he say? Oh, yeah, he does. One thing he says is not good. Unbelief. Oh, uh oh, I have problems now because I've now tied belief to good and unbelief to evil. And belief is pretty important. We'll get to that in just a second. Would please somebody explain if God cannot, uh, if good cannot be defined, what is the purpose of the great white throne judgment? Everything becomes meaningless and nothing can be believed. And belief is a foundation stone in Scripture. I want you to think about belief. This is where we asked a few, que- a few weeks ago. I want you to think about defining belief. It is a foundation stone. It says in Scripture that God must be believed. Okay, we are saved by belief. If God must be believed in rendering good meaningless or confused and or confusing good with evil destroys belief. Think it through. If there is no good, what is belief? If good is destroyed, belief is, is destroyed. And here comes John 8, 24, which, I, as I said, I can't read it enough. This time we're going to go word by word in the remaining minutes. For 
I only get a few words. For is the first word of John 8.24. If you, for if you do not believe, This is who's saying this, John 8, 24. Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniperfect. I am. That's what he says. If for, if you do not believe I am, then you will die in your sins. That's God. If you do not believe I am, he's saying to you, if you do not believe that he is the I am. If you do not believe that he is God himself, the creator of all things, the Lord God Almighty, you will die in your sins. And his definition of die is not physical death there. Now, in the context for... Is the same as because. And if is conditional. And you is you. And belief is believing. So far, so good. If is very important in this, uh, in this verse. All of Scripture is is God breathed. There is no nothing that isn't that is happenstance in Scripture. This if uh, if then the then is implied. Uh, the if then format is significant here because it demonstrates not just a condition but a consequence. And believe if you do not believe is once again necessary to define. What I mean by that, what are the steps of believing? How is it that you believe? What do you go through to believe? It's not in the text, no. It is not. I, I put the then in. Uh, it, is, uh, uh, it is in some, but I don't believe it's in the original. If you do not believe I am, you will die. But again, I have conditional and I have causation and I have because. But what are the steps of belief? How does one believe? Why did God place belief into his plan of salvation? Because he clearly says right here, you have to believe I am or you will die. Why did he do that? What's implied? You have the capacity to do something here. In fact, you must do it. What is it that you must do or you're going to die? What do you got to do? You got to believe. So I ask, how do you believe? Let me ask you this. Do you decide to believe? Remember, we get into this discussion because they start saying to us, you have no capacity to make a free will decision of any kind. Is that sentence telling you that you have no capacity to make a free will decision of any kind? He says, you must believe. How is it that you believe? What's the anatomy? And by the way, does belief exist? If belief is decision-making and you have no ability to make a decision, then decisions don't exist. This is God saying you must believe. He is bringing up belief. Would he bring up belief if belief didn't exist? 
Belief exists. Does belief have meaning? John 8.24 implies, I think, unmistakably, that we have the capacity to believe. And does that give us the capacity to have a free will decision? Can I decide to believe? Do we possess the capacity to make the decision to believe, to repeat myself? Why would God himself say this, put it in, in this if-causation conditional format if we cannot believe? Again, causation and consequence are clearly in the statement in on John 8, 24. The view of many scholars is that Christ is merely perpetuating, and I use the word scholar um, uh, just out of, I don't know why I would say it, but it, they call themselves that, so I will. And I have a higher standard for scholarship than this. But the view of many is that Christ is merely perpetuating the illusion of free will in John 8.24. That this is an illusion in humanity. And, and my mail constantly reminds me of that. There are a substantial number of advocates for the position that there is no free will of any kind ever. And both from Christians and from the physicalists or the monistic evolutionary side. They, those people are legion. There's far more of them than any other group. And they say no free will of any kind ever. And I find such to be unacceptable because of the consequences to salvation and to existence. I'll try to explain that really fast now. Christ is God himself. He is the I am. And over and over and over and over and over again, Christ declares himself to be the I am. And he says, you have to believe that. And I've said that um, many times, that the I am carries with it. The, the, the timelessness of Christ, that he is the creator of time and he is outside of time and not subject to time. And he is by himself alone in that regard. He, he, only he is in the present tense. Only he is omnipresent. That's why he calls himself the I am. And so that his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence makes, if you will, that a requirement that he be the only one that can be called the I am. So understanding, that's why it's his name, understanding the impact that I am has on time is important. But I, but I am is also um, a declaration of existence. He exists. I am the one that exists. I'm running out of time, supper day, so I've got to go. He is saying that I am God and I am the existing one. Out of me comes existence. Jesus Christ is the one who gives existence. He tells me that, by the way, that he knows me and that he has always known me. What does it mean to know me? As soon as he says he knows me, what's that tell me about me? I exist. I have existence. He gave it to me. He gave it to you. All existence flows from Christ. When he says, I am, you can say, he is saying, I exist. That would be equally uh, evident as is timelessness. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ exists, then you will die spiritually and physically in your sins. By the way, he tells me that I can know his voice, doesn't he? My sheep will know my voice. So I can know that. What's his voice? Is it a good voice or a bad voice? Oh, it's a good voice. I can know a good voice. And if there is a good voice, then can I know what's not a good voice? All of a sudden, I'm knowing things. That's pretty cool. And how am I deciding? Oops, what is good and what is bad? 
I can tell the difference between his voice, the good voice, and the evil voice. I can do it. I can know. Uh-oh. How is the knowing process? I can believe in that voice and not believe that voice. Can I tell good from evil? Can you tell good from evil? And if I can know his voice, what else do I know? Instead of what else do I not know? Can I distinguish anything? What is the anatomy of distinguishing? If I can start distinguishing things, what, what capability do I have? If you do not believe Jesus Christ exists, that he is the existent one, the out of time, the present tense one, the omnipresent, if you do not believe that he is the I am, you will die spiritually and physically in your sins. Okay, last week I posited this question. If I have no free will, if that, if I go ahead and accept that ridiculous hypothesis that I can't know anything, I can't know good from evil, that I am a total idiot, a ranting total idiot. So we're adding total to ranting now. I am the total ranting idiot. Not just described that way, but now self-described. If I give you your hypothesis, I concede it, your premise, and if I have no free will, I ask this, do I actually really exist now? Can I exist without free will? Does free will and existence, are they interdependent? And I propose to you that they are. Not propose, I'm going to tell you they are. Is my self-identity dependent upon my free will? And is my free will required for existence? Um, Again, are they connected, interdependent, inseparable? He who gives me existence, by the way, would know that, wouldn't he? Because he's the one that designed the system. Is if self-awareness and self-identity is dependent on free will and free will is required for existence, then all who are given by the I am. uh, I'm sorry, I said it badly. If self-awareness and self-identity is dependent on free will and free will is required for existence, then all of those, the self-identity, the self-awareness, the free will and the uh, uh, all of those existence, all of those are given by the I am They come as a package. They're required. You don't get a package of existence and, you, and, and it has no self-identity in it. You don't get your existence. You see, if you say you can't know good from evil, and good and evil are meaningless, and you can't make a decision to believe, you have no belief capability, then do you really have existence? Do you really have anything? Would God divine a system... Design a system where none are saved, I say that all the time, and where no one exists. Is that what you got? You are exactly like the evolutionist now. That's where you are. And life then is defined when you begin to figure out that self-identity, self-awareness, free will, existence are tied together in such a way that you can't separate one from the other. You take one of those out, and you have non-existence. Existence is going to push you into a place. If you say you exist, you're now confronting belief, which means you're confronting decision, which means you're confronting free will, which means you're confronting self-identity and self-awareness. Can I have self-identity with the inability to make a decision of any kind? I tell you that if you have no decision-making capability, you have no Self-identity. Send me letters. Argue with me. Now, if Jesus Christ in John 8, 24 is intentionally using the conditional if while knowing that no free will exists, 
By the way, he's omniscient. He would know that if he's actually doing what they're saying, that he's making an illusion out of this, knowing that there is no real free will. So if Jesus Christ, uh, John 8, 24, if I want to concede that premise, if he's intentionally using the conditional if while knowing that no free will exists. uh, um, And if he knows that his omniscience destroys or invalidates human free will, then the if must be explained as well as the believe. What what made him do that? And I'll set that aside for now. I'll just focus on the consequences of the perfect sacrifice. This is the perfect sacrifice now. He's continuing something. He is going, he is contributing to an illusion. He is telling you something is uh, the case. If you have to believe or you will perish when he knows that you have no ability to believe. And if he's doing that, what have you done? If that's your position, what have you done to the sacrifice? You see, if you say that's true, if you say that the perfect sacrifice is continuing an illusion, what's an illusion? It's a lie. What have you done to the sacrifice? You fouled the sacrifice again, and where are you back? None are saved. You see, if the sacrifice is fouled, none are saved. There was never any salvation. And and if there was never any salvation... Then God is the cosmic sadist, the great deceiver, the great illusionist. Nothing can be believed. Everything is meaningless. Back we go to that. Lies of truth are, uh, lies and truth are equal, and, and we're total imbeciles again, total ranting idiots again, unable to know the difference between good and evil. And that send, sends us back to purposelessness of reality, exactly as I said the physicalist asserts. Then what's the point of trying to think about anything? So uh, as C.S. Lewis says, this 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 not unties that they think they have, it unties so simply. It, you just pull on it, it comes apart. So, as the musicians are required to come forward, why must the musicians come forward? A great question. I should ask it every Sunday. And now we've noticed uh, anybody with a mathematical capability is now fully aware that the musicians are now outnumbering the congregants. Welcome to hunting season in Alaska. See, this knot that no one has any free will looks formidable when you first approach it, but eventually it's obvious that it is a tiny little spot of dust that is easily blown away. I conclude, by the way, that the solution to all of this is not the complete absence of free will, it's instead to investigate the meaning, the meaning of the image of God uh, and knowing good and evil and something we'll do next week. And I'll finish this up uh, instead of going to Romans 5. But I did kind of go to Romans 5 today, didn't I? I brought you Adam. There was a small little tiny bit of Romans 5. Yes, Bill the Cow, who's now famous in Australia. Yeah, if you heard that, he asked, what is for breakfast, the serpent or the egg? Is that what you said? For, for next week's sermon? This, oh, for this sermon. Oh, well, I'm sure that everyone who listened to this sermon will agree with me that I am now a total ranting idiot. So I, I expect that to be predominant. Okay, let's uh, do the other thing we're required to do, which is rise and be dismissed.